everybody. Good luck getting that song out of your head for the rest of the afternoon. I didn't know this uh, before my research in Esther, but the Jewish community during the festival of Purim, like they have entire just parodies like crazy. If you just YouTube Purim parody, like I was on several rabbis' blog posts where they have the top 10 of 2014, top 10 of 2015, where they typically take a popular song like that and, and do a parody. That's very interesting to me. We're going to conclude our series out of Esther this morning, and we're going to cover chapter 5 to chapter 10, which is a lot, and I'm not going to read every word. So we're going to read some, and you're going to get the Sam's paraphrase version for a lot of it. Uh, but I want to encourage you to uh, go home and read the rest of the story. I think it will help you in regards to just uh, understanding and just getting into the story of Esther. If you missed the last two weeks, you could go to livingstones.cc, click on our message tabs, and you can catch up on the two podcasts from the previous weeks. Just by way of a quick review, the very first week we talked about the first two chapters of Esther, and in the end, based on the story, talked about the providence of God, which simply means this, that God is in control of the universe. God is in control of history. And the reason why this is important, because there are times that we walk through things that are so painful or so difficult or so disequilibrium, uh, you know, our, our equilibrium is just thrown way off that we don't know what's going on. And Esther reminds us that God is big enough, great enough, and has a vantage point where oftentimes He can take those things that are going on in our life, even our moments of suffering, and in the end, bring us to a point where we recognize he was actually in control of it all along. I'm not saying he's caused all of it, but that he's able to take it and he's in control of all things. He is the one who controls all of history. And then last week, we took a look at the last two, chapters 3 and 4 of Esther, and we kind of focused on Mordecai's famous line to Esther, Queen Esther at the time, where he says, perhaps you have obtained your royal position for such a time as this, meaning that the Jews are in danger because of Haman and the king's edict. Maybe you are where you are, God has put you there, and everything you have gone through in your life is for this very moment. And in it, how do we find our own for such a time as this moment, where God put us through this event, and we went through this amount of suffering, we took, and this happened, and we had no idea, but all of it now comes together for where you are at at this moment, that God wants to use you in an amazing way. Because the, the most difficult thing is not God's ability to use our lives for His purposes. The most difficult thing is to believe that God wants to, wants to use our lives for His purposes. Now, in regards to the story of Esther itself, here's where we left off. Haman was personally offended because Mordecai would not bow down to him and pay him homage, even though the king Xerxes commanded it. So Haman convinced King Xerxes to issue a decree that on the 13th day of Adar, all the Jews should be annihilated and slaughtered. But unbeknownst to the king, his own queen, Esther, is Jewish. So Mordecai asks Esther to go before the king and plead for the Jews. But there's only one problem. If you went into the presence of the king and he did not summon you, the only consequence is you get whacked, you get killed, unless he raises his golden scepter to you. So there's a lot of danger for Esther to go in to see the king, especially because we read last week, the king has not summoned Esther to see him in 30 days. So it's not yet clear at all in the story that the king is even pleased with Esther still. It's been a month since he's even called her into his presence. But in the end, Esther agrees to go see the king, saying, if I perish, I perish. And then she asks Mordecai and all the Jews to fast for her and for this petition on her behalf. So now we're going to start with chapter 5, verse 1. Now, with all the suspense now of not knowing what happens to Esther, she's going to enter into the presence of the king. Verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. 
When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. <laughs> okay, this is a big relief. And he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half of my kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do as what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And Esther replied, well, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. So let's talk about what's going on here for just a moment. The king is on his royal throne. Not this one, but he's on this one. And after three days of prayer and fasting, Esther goes into risking her own life here, enters into the presence of the king. And as soon as he sees her, it says he was pleased with her because we didn't know because it's been 30 days since he's even summoned her into his presence. So he raises his golden scepter. The queen approaches, touches the tip as a sign of respect. And even better news, King Xerxes says to his queen, I'll give you anything that you ask, even up to half the kingdom. And this is way better than the prenuptial agreement that she signed entering into the marriage. So things at this moment are looking really good. Now, if this phrase sounds familiar, this phrase, even up to half of my kingdom, it should because this is not the only time in the Bible that we hear such a phrase being uttered from a king. In fact, if you fast forward into the New Testament, I don't know if you'll remember Herod uh, Antipas is his name. And he has a wife that he stole from his half-brother, Herodias is her name, and she has a daughter that seems to be kind of, I guess, hot and good-looking. Well, Herod Antipas throws, once again, a party. It's a birthday party, and all of his military leaders are there, and his nobles and those who are advising him are there, and they're all getting drunk. And Herodias's daughter dances in front of everybody, and the king, probably in his drunken state, says, Ask anything that you want, and it'll be given to you even up to half the kingdom. That's what he says in Mark 6, 23. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Remember that? Remember what she asks for? She's psychotic, so she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. Now, maybe Xerxes was drunk like Herod Antipas when he utters this. It doesn't say that. My guess is that this phrase, up to half of my kingdom, was a traditional hyperbole intended to simply say, I am pleased with you, and you can ask me whatever you want. And for our story with Queen Esther, this is most important. What is interesting is that Esther doesn't come right out and ask for mercy for the Jews. Instead, she says, no, no, I'm going to put on a banquet today, and I'd like you to come there and bring Haman with you. So that's what happens. Immediately, the king summons Haman. They attend the banquet. And as they're drinking wine and enjoying the moment, again, the king will say to Esther, now, make your request. Anything you ask, even up to half of my kingdom. So things are looking really good for Esther, but then her request is strange to me. What she says is, I want you and Haman to come back tomorrow because I'm going to put on another banquet, and then I'll tell you what it is that I want. Now, why she does this, I don't know, and maybe, 
Maybe she's building suspense in the king. Maybe she's still weighing her options of exactly how she's going to word this. I don't know. Maybe at the last minute she lost a little bit of confidence and panicked and decided to postpone for another day. But this is how it ends. Now, there's a scene change that takes place in our story in chapter 5, and it picks up in verse 9. Here's what it says. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, probably from too much wine. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman was able to pull it together, and he he restrained himself, and he went home. But when he got home, he called together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and then Haman started boasting to them about his vast wealth and how many sons he has, and all the ways that the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person that Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And so his wife, Zeresh, and his friends said to him, well, here's what you ought to do. You ought to have a pole set up. Now, some of your translations will say gallows, so some of your translations will say either gallows or pole, reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning just to have Mordecai impaled on it or hung on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and then finally enjoy yourself because you got rid of Mordecai. And this suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole or the gallows set up. Now, here we have another interaction between Haman and Mordecai, and once again, it provokes rage in Haman. But he's able to pull it together a little bit, goes home to share and vent to his wife and friends. Now, I like the scene. He's with his wife and his friends, and he's just bragging, right? I'm the best. Look at me. I'm the best. So here's a picture of Haman bragging about himself to his wife and friends. (laughs) And here's Haman's wife's reach saying, I know, baby, you are the best. And so they had this whole conversation. But as great as I am... That Mordecai will still not bow down to me, and I hate him. In fact, I hate him so much when I see him, I can't even enjoy all the good stuff I got going on in my own life. Now, just as a side note, this is an important lesson for someone here this morning. Like, you really are blessed beyond measure, but you're letting one person in your life steal your joy. And I don't know who it is, but something so tragic or traumatic has happened in your life that you can't get over it, and you're allowing one person, like a Mordecai, to steal all of your joy. Maybe it's an ex-relationship, maybe an ex-boyfriend, ex-spouse. Maybe it's a boss that you still blame for uh, unjustly treating you in the workplace and terminating you. Or maybe it's an ex-friend that betrayed you, but it's stealing your joy. And I'm telling you, it's time to sever that and say, bye, Felicia, don't be a Haman. So what his wife and friends tell Haman ultimately is, well, build the pole or these gallows and just have Mordecai hanged on it and then go to the dinner and be happy, and Haman liked this plan. So what we have here is another scene change in our story. And instead of reading all of chapter 6, allow me to give you the same paraphrase, but read it later to make sure I'm accurate in it. Here's what you need to know, um, and you probably didn't know this, but King Xerxes struggles with insomnia, like he can't sleep at night. And... Um, you know, and you can imagine the kind of pressure he's probably under as, you know, the king of this massive empire that's the largest in the world. And just to the east, there's a rising uh, empire called the Greeks. And so that puts a lot of pressure on a king. And he probably is up at late at night and can't sleep. So he tried melatonin and that didn't work. He put in the earplugs and the sleeping mask and that didn't work either. He even 
tried listening to my sermons on podcasts, which seems to be a very effective sleep medicine for some of you here this morning, I see. His doctor prescribed some Ambien, nothing. So finally he thought to himself, you know what I ought to do? Like, I'm just going to have an attendant come in and just read back to me the chronicles of my reign. Because what they did is the scribes of the king would just write down very meticulously everything that happened, every edict that King Xerxes uh, pronounced, everything that happened in his reign. Just They're going to come in and just read me the diary to me, and that will probably help me fall asleep. And so that's exactly what happened. An attendant grabs the chronicles, enters into the presence of King Xerxes, and starts reading. Now, what are the chances that the record they happen to pick up and start reading actually contained the story? Do you remember when Mordecai thwarted that assassination plot? The two officials at the gate were going to kill King Xerxes, and Mordecai heard about it, told Esther, and Esther told the king. Remember that story? That's what they were reading back from the records to help King Xerxes fall asleep. So right there, the king interrupts the attendant and says, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Did we ever do anything to honor or even recognize Mordecai for this? I mean, did we send a thank you card, flowers? Did we give him an edible arrangement? Did we do anything? And the answer is, no, your majesty. We didn't do anything for him. You've got to be kidding me. Like, this guy saved my life. We've got to do something. And so King Xerxes says, which one of my advisors is actually in the court? And it just so happens that Haman had just arrived in the court of the king because he wants to talk to the king about going ahead and hanging uh, Mordecai and then enjoying the banquet. And so the attendant says, well, Haman has just come in. And the king says, well, bring him on in. So they grab Haman and they bring him to the king. And the king says to Haman, what should be done for a man that the king delights to honor? And Haman being the prideful dude he is, is thinking, oh, this has got to be me, right? Like, the king, like, really, who else is tr- like, who else is as great in the empire as me? When the king wants to honor somebody, he's probably talking about me. So he kind of acts like he doesn't really know. He's just thinking it's himself. Oh, well, king, here's what you ought to do. You should take one of the royal robes that you've actually worn, and you should put it around the man you want to honor. And then you should take one of the horses that you've actually ridden on, and you should put the man with the robe on the horse, with your crest on the horse, and have a very important official, noble, lead him throughout the city, crying out, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And King Xerxes, after hearing it, goes, excellent idea. And then he says to Haman... Go get Mordecai and do exactly as you proposed. (laughs) And Haman, in bitter irony, ends up leading Mordecai through the city with a royal horse and a royal robe saying, and this is what happens to a man the king delights to honor. The irony is just oozing, isn't it? I love irony. It's a great literary device, and it's an interesting turn in life, often filled with amazing opportunities of humor, irony speaks. Let me show you some pictures of irony here. Two guys taking a nap in a five-hour five energy van, right? Here's a night to remember. It's a, for, to support Alzheimer's. That's kind of wrong, isn't it? Irony. Here's one. It's the College of Architecture and Planning, but they didn't leave enough room for the sea, so it gets stuck on the other building. Right? Here's a ride. It's closed. It's because of too much wind, and the ride's name is Windseeker. <laughs> Irony. <laughs> Ironic. <laughs> that is a real drive-through. A fire truck on fire. Isn't that terrible? Keep going. Anyone get this? Yeah, I got booed the first service too. Okay, moving on. (laughs) 
Uh, this is Tom Brady's ball, never flat. <laughs> I like this. Where the news hits home, yes, it does. This is a movie, Unbreakable. <laughs> TV psychic medium Joe Power canceled due to unforeseen circumstances. <laughs> Texting while driving kills. For more driving tips, text SAFETY to 79191. <laughs> Nothing is written in stone. Here's one. A guy reading a book on fasting and downing a Subway sandwich. This, this, this one just kind of pained me deep down. It pained me. There's a couple more here. There's flying school. And then close to home. School, too easy for kids. If you don't get that, you can ask somebody else. All right, we're moving on. We're moving on. So Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told his wife and friends everything that had just happened. Now, when Haman goes home and tells his wife and friends what had happened, even they know, uh-oh, this is not good. In fact, they say this, it's at the end of verse 13, if you want to go towards halfway through the verse, his advisors, his wife Zeresh, say to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And just as they're talking, the king's eunuchs show up to escort, remember how they were invited to the second banquet with Esther? The eunuchs show up to escort Haman to that second banquet that Esther had prepared. But the irony of the story is far from over. So let's listen to what happens next. So Haman, no doubt probably a nervous wreck by this point, and the king are eating and they're drinking wine at the banquet Esther has put together. And finally the king asks again, tell me, my queen, what is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be yours. To which Esther's confidence is rising. This is excellent news. And now she goes for it. Verse 3 says this, of chapter 7, verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Listen, if we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would, have been, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Well, when King Xerxes hears of this, he asks Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went, listen, you know they're really angry if they leave their wine, Right? Because you take your wine with you, and when you're really angry, you forgot you even had wine. That's how angry King Xerxes is. He goes out into the palace garden, but Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. So, just as the king was coming back in, returning from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. So you see what it looks like, right? The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. Talk about irony. 
what a turn of events. One moment you're on the top of the world, the next you're whacked. And it happens over and over again in history, doesn't it? It kind of reminds me of Muammar Gaddafi. Remember his story out of Libya? One moment he's the reigning king, and the next you're being dragged out of a vehicle by a revolting mob and are beaten to death. You live by the sword, you die by the sword, or gallows, or pole, whatever the case might be. Be careful how you live. And as you enter into chapter 8, it tells us that that day, the king just handed over to Queen Esther the entire estate of Haman. Mordecai got to come in and actually meet King Xerxes, and then the king gave Mordecai the signet ring that he had taken off of Haman and given to him earlier and handed it over to Mordecai, and at the same time, Esther hands to Mordecai the entire estate of Haman. And then Esther again begs the king to stop the plot devised by Haman. Remember the one on the 13th of the month of Adar, the 12th month of Adar, all the Jews are supposed to be slaughtered? That's already gone out. So the queen right now begs the king, please put an end to this. And the king is favorable because he extends the golden scepter again, but here's a problem. Remember, this king has so many edicts and commands, it's always getting in the way. Remember that? Always sending edicts and commands. Well, here's another problem that we have. The king has already issued a command that declares that when the king issues a document in his name and it's sealed with his ring, it can never be revoked. It is unable to be repealed. The king, nor anyone for that matter, could just change their minds. It is set in stone. But the king has an idea. I can't change that first edict that's set for the 13th of Adar, where I have given permission to the entire empire to slaughter all the Jews. But I can issue another edict that I think might help. So they call in all of the royal secretaries, they're summoned, and they write in every language of the entire empire, I mean all 127 provinces, a new edict in every language, including Hebrews, so that the Jews can read it in their own language, and then they sent them off by couriers riding on fast horses, especially bred for the king. And this is what the edict said, it's in Esther 8, beginning of verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and to protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and then to plunder their property of the enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was, guess what? The 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. And then a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So what's happening here is I can't overturn the first edict, but I can command that the Jews can defend and protect themselves. This is sort of like um, the first and second amendments of the Persian constitution. They have the right to free assembly and they also have the right to bear arms to defend themselves against their enemies. Verse 15 of chapter 8 says this, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, which was the colors of the empire, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And many people of other nationalities even became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. And then you get to chapter 9. And chapter 9 takes a dark turn. It's the most violent ending to the story. 
And we're left trying to sort out the ethical implications of the narrative. We're even left trying to figure out what do you do with Queen Esther? Because, and what I like about the story, and this is the way the Bible oftentimes reads, is um, there's great complexity to every character. And it never tries to portray anyone as perfect. Like Jesus alone is kind of portrayed in his, in his perfection. Everybody else, you kind of have to wrestle with, is that okay? Is that not okay? What do we do with this? And it's no different than when we get to chapter 9. Esther is far from being one-dimensional, and she's come a long way from that orphan girl living in her cousin Mordecai's house. And on the 13th day of Adar, the Jews attacked those who hated them and were their enemies. And no one could stand against them because of all the peoples of all nationalities were afraid of them, and Mordecai becomes more powerful. Here's what it says in verse 3 of Esther chapter 9. It says, And all the nobles of the provinces the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. In just the city of Susa, the Persian capital, they killed 500 men, including 10 sons of Haman. But It says, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And you'll see that phrase over and over again. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. So the report came back to the king that 500 had been slaughtered, including the 10 sons of Haman. So he summoned his queen Esther and told her what had happened. And they asked her, and then asked her, do you have any other requests? Is there anything else you want, right? This has happened. They've slaughtered 500, 10 sons of Haman. And here's what Esther says, very interestingly, verse 13. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, Give the Jews and Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. You see what she's asking? She wants another day to slaughter. And let Haman's ten other sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa another three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, all 127 of them, also assembled to protect themselves and got relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. So we learned that 800 men were killed in the capital, and about 75,000 were slaughtered throughout the empire. And 20 of Haman's sons hanged on the very gallows that Haman had planned for the Jews. The Jews and Esther got their revenge. And it is a challenge to us, even in regards to history. Over 76,000 people were killed, and that's a significant number. It's like killing everyone who lives in Gary, Indiana, which is about 76,000 people, or Lafayette, Indiana, which is about 76,000 people in population. Can you imagine every resident of those cities gone? I wonder how we would respond historically if we read in our history books of a time when Native American Indians rose up and slaughtered 76,000 white European settlers here in America. Or if African slaves in the U.S. rose up and in two days' time slaughtered 76,000 slave owners and whites. Or if the headlines reported that South Africans slaughtered 76,000 whites after apartheid fell or in India that they rose up and slaughtered 76,000 British after their independence. 
I'm pretty sure if CNN news crews were on the scene broadcasting live footage of 76,000 people being slaughtered, we might wince just a little bit. It might challenge our response. We can barely handle a riot in Baltimore. Can you imagine if we were to witness 76,000 people being slaughtered? And we're left trying to figure out the ethical ramifications of this event, even as the Scriptures gives us no commentary on it, and absolutely none that could be attached to the name of God as, as I mentioned last week, His name isn't used once in this entire book. But to a people who are perpetually the victims of persecution and death and holocaust, it's a story of celebration. To a minority group, and that is what they were, a minority, so let the reader be aware of their own position in society as you read this story, but to a minority group who felt like they were at the mercy always of people's hatred and abuse and persecution and execution of the powerful majorities, this story is a story of liberation, a turning of the tables where God avenges. So once a year, we will recall our story, a story of a persecuted minority that God rescues. And when we tell this story, we will party because of it. And if you ask me why someone wrote the story of Esther, I would say that the secret is probably at the end here in chapter 9. It appears that the Jews were celebrating this annual tradition of Purim, but they started to lose the why behind the celebration. They began to forget what it was that happened that even caused the celebration to begin with. It's sort of like, remember at Christmas, we always use that phrase, remember the reason for the season? It's kind of like that, but for Purim. And so somebody writes this book for us to remind the Jews, and probably even because there's a few discrepancies in terms of how the Jews were observing this festival, which I'll read about here. Listen to what it says here in verse 17. It says, Verse 9, 17 says, This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. See how this is different there? Some of the Jews rested on the 14th, some rested on the 15th. Verse 19, this is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th, of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents to food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on, his, on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word pur, meaning to cast the lot. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who had joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. And by the way, when you're here on the south side of South Bend, our Jewish community on March 23rd and 24th, 
we'll be once again celebrating this festival that goes all the way back to this story. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation for every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. And that's why they celebrate the festival of Purim. Now Esther will close with chapter 10, and it's just three verses long. It's a very short chapter, and it simply tells us that Mordecai became great, reaching even to the level of being second in command in the Persian Empire. But it's hard not to read the story of Esther and celebrate the downfall and demise of Haman. It's kind of like karma. There's something deep down that we love about karma. The twist of fate, this completely awesome irony, this moment of you get what you deserve. The universe was watching and it made amends. Karma. Except the universe wasn't watching. God was watching. And the story is about trusting in God to work this all out and to avenge. The story is not about arming ourselves to take out our enemies. That storyline only gets a few verses. It's a much longer story that starts with an orphan girl, a deposed queen, a ruler of an empire, an evil advisor, and many more. And the point of the story is, watch God. And even though His name never appears in the book, God is watching what is happening in your life. And He sees the pain. And He sees the suffering. And He sees the injustice. And what Esther reminds us is, He has not forgotten you. Even if in the moment it feels like He has. And we confess there are moments when it does feel like God has forgotten. Jesus reminds us, A sparrow can't even fall out of the sky without God noting it. Jesus will remind us God knows how many hairs are on your head, which is more of a challenge for some of you than others, uh, I confess. And He knows exactly what you're walking through. And because of that, He knows exactly how to bring about deliverance and salvation and rescue. It might take from you faith and patience to watch that plan unfold. And I'll be the first to confess, sometimes that's the hardest part of all. But the truth is, karma is not a concept taught by Christianity. We don't believe in karma. We're not rooting for karma. Now, I'm not saying that you don't see that principle taught and kind of like that you reap what you sow. That kind of touches a little bit on that idea. But karma is the idea that the universe is going to hand out to each person what they deserve. And in that We are not people of karma. We are people of grace. Grace teaches that we are going to receive what we do not deserve. And this is our story. That when karma came to put a smackdown on all of us, Jesus stepped in front of it and took it on himself. And because of that, extended to us grace. And because we get to live in that grace, it empowers us to now simply entrust to God everything going on in our life to say, He'll sort it out. He sees our situation and He's going to handle it. That's why Paul can remind the Christians in Romans chapter 12, many of them who are undergoing their own persecutions in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, you should live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May you have faith and confidence in a God that no matter what you're going through right now, He will have your back, and He will take care of you. And may our confidence in God in this way, even illustrated by Esther, allow us to be known not as the people who are rooting for karma, but as the people who live in grace. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we're grateful that you have given us your word, and within it is this story of Esther. And as we wrap it up together, we just pray, Lord, that the lessons that you've wished to share with us uh, would be carried out those doors that apply to our lives, because I recognize there are things going on that we cannot explain. And there are hardships and moments of great pain and suffering and tears that have no answer to. And we don't know where else we're even going to find an answer unless it comes from you. And so we cast our eyes on you and ask that out of just mercy and compassion, you might allow us to have a glimpse into the vantage point that is yours that allows us to see how you're going to use all of these things and all of these circumstances and all of our life experiences to lead up to maybe our own for just a moment as this experience, but even beyond that, an opportunity for you to be working out your glory and your salvation here on earth. We believe that you can use us and even the things that we've walked through for great things. Redeem those moments, please, for the sake of those who are hurting. Redeem those moments for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.